0: This is your host, Casey Deshock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. This is episode six. My guest is economist Ed King from the King Economics Group. You may have heard or know of him as his role as the state's top economist under Governor Dunleavy or as an economic advisor to Governor Bill Walker. He's been an instructor of economics throughout the UA system, or you may have come across him through his numerous publications that he's done. Ed, welcome to Alaska Conversations. Hey, thanks, Keith. So tell me a little bit about what you've done as far as economics goes for the state, what you've uh, studied or where you've uh, really cut your teeth in economics here in Alaska.
1: Yeah, sure. I I, uh, actually got my master's degree at uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks in economics and, and started studying our economy way back then. And then I, I ended up getting brought into the department of revenue and helped adjust the way that they were forecasting revenues, uh, way back in what was it, 2012 or 13 and, uh, kind of went through that system and then moved up to the department of natural resources and worked on some economic issues up there. The governor ended up moving me over to Juno, and, um, Three or four years ago and was economic advisor to governor walker and then uh, chief economist under governor Dunleavy last session um, although i've been out on my own now since uh, july
0: and you stayed around juno right
1: yeah i live in juneau now mm-hmm.
0: and you've seen a couple of different administrations and you've also you've been in the academic world you've been around a lot of different economists And one thing I would say about you, at least what I gather, is that you've taken a little bit of a contrarian view to the economics of Alaska or economics in general. So you wrote a piece, I believe it was on November 6th, people can look to it, and I will link to it on our website. But you said basically that the Alaska economy is stronger than it looks and that it shouldn't be all doom and gloom. I assume that some of that's based off of economic models, and I would like to know a little bit about how economic models work. So can you explain what an economist is doing? Because clearly they're not just writing down numbers on a notepad. So what is an economic model? How does it work? Are there lots of them or just one model that we can use?
1: Yeah, so I guess i just tackle the question generally. Um, a model is a scaled-down version of reality, just like a model car is a scaled-down version of a car. An economic model is a scaled-down version of the economic system. So what we like to do is is figure out how all of the different pieces in the economy are interacting, how they link together. Um, And then as we project trends that are happening in the economy, we can see how those trends push the the different gears, if you will, of the rest of the economic system. And so we can can watch how an injection or uh, a subtraction out of the economy kind of trickles through, if you will, um, the rest of the
0: economic system who makes the assumptions that drive the models because I've seen some numbers where it appears to me untrained economists that tourism jobs and maybe logging job or other industries all get the same value when it comes to the amount of revenue that that job creates or the amount of income that that job creates that can't be right is it
1: yeah, so every every economist or every person that's that's making a model is is going to be making their own assumptions and, and using hopefully, hopefully using the same data, um, but making different assumptions and conclusions about what that data means and where what it means going forward. There are a couple of kind of off the shelf models, input output models out there. A lot of different economists might use those uh, off-the-shelf models. I don't personally really like them. I don't think they reflect Alaska's economy all that well. But, yeah, you're, you are right in the fact that every there, there isn't a one model that everybody's using. So uh, you can come up with different conclusions based on different assumptions. And it is quite
0: the undertaking to develop an economic model. So, I mean, you're taking a long time. Most of the information that you gather, I assume, is from surveys maybe, sending them out to different businesses. So you're constrained by what you get from information back from the survey takers?
1: Yeah, so for the most part, the, the government does a really good job of collecting data and making it available. So the Department of Labor puts out some good data, the federal government puts out some good data, the Bureau of Economic Analysis really does a good job of making data available. And, and a lot of that is done based on surveys or based sometimes on, on an actual census of, of uh, you know, an actual counting of what's going on. So like our jobs numbers are an actual real number, if you will, of number of people that are paying unemployment insurance, for example. So that number is, is a lot more reliable than you know, survey data might be. So there's, there's a wide variety of where the data comes from.
0: When you were the top economist at the state or just over the course of the last year, we were looking at some budgets and a good portion of the economists were saying that it would result in X number of jobs lost. Usually it was like four or five, maybe 6,000 jobs lost. You had said that it wouldn't be quite that steep. What's the difference in the assumption that you were making versus somebody else was making?
1: Yeah, you know, I have to think that it really comes down to just some semantics, really, uh, when, when somebody says that uh, taking money out of the economy is going to cost so many jobs, the assumption that they're making is that everything else is going to be held constant except for that change. And so what you're talking about is an impact analysis. What there, an impact analysis is not a prediction of what the future will look like. It's a hypothetical of what the future would look like if nothing else changed. And so what I was trying to point out was that because the economy is growing in other ways, there are going to be these offsetting effects and we're not actually going to experience the kind of reduction in jobs that people were claiming that we were going to so there's just this miscommunication or misunderstanding about what that four or five thousand job number meant and i was that's what i was trying to say like no you can't you can't take that number and then pretend like you take jobs today and minus five thousand and that's what jobs tomorrow are going to be that's not how it works and i don't think a lot of people really understood that but you are seeing it now like icer just put out a Job forecast, so did the Department of Labor actually, um, and both of them are saying that twenty twenty is going to be, you know, about a thousand or or fifteen hundred job uh, increase, which is exactly what I was saying a year ago.
0: And when we're looking at these predictions, and you noted this in, in your article, it's not as if somebody comes out and corrects the record and says, all right, well, that's not what we've seen. The models don't seem to get changed. I mean, you would think that if you have a real-world experiment, essentially the budget is cut, that models would change going into the future. Does reality play into any of those, or does this, does the model stay the same?
1: Yeah, um, so off the off-the-shelf models. They, they there's a limited ability to really change how they function. Uh, and so I don't know that there's a lot of changing that happens. Some of the, the more, the created models
0: you know, that I use
1: or that some of the other economists in the state use, uh, there's probably an opportunity to go in there and, and make some adjustments. But one of the things they have to realize is that we get paid as economists, we get paid to make forecasts, we get paid to make these analyses we usually don't get paid to go back and check our work, right? And so I I really don't think that a lot of people spend a lot of time going through looking at their previous work and analyzing how effective it was at predicting the future. It's unfortunate. That's, That's something that really should happen. But what you end up with is these experts that have experience in making forecasts, but there's no check on how accurate those forecasts are. And so then it becomes really easy to confuse Making a forecast with forecast accuracy. So experience gets confused as as expertise, and that's one of the things that I try to go back and look at the work that I've done, and and even then, if you're putting out a lot of work, it's really difficult just because the sheer volume of the workload. But you can't get better if you're if you're not deliberate in trying to get better. When
0: we look at data, one observation I've had with data, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but When you're talking about experts looking at data, that's what's feeding most of the economic models. And one of the problems is that people are inherently lazy at times. So some of the things that we base our observations on are the things that are easy to measure. So we don't necessarily go out and capture the things that are hard to measure. And those things play a role in in the economy, but not everything can be measured that easily and not everything folds nicely into an economic model I don't imagine.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely true, right? It's, it's easy to count how many people are working or how many jobs that there are, or, or you can even check IRS data and see how much people are getting paid. Those things are relatively easy to figure out, but quality of life or standard of living or those kinds of things, they are impossible to measure, uh, really. There might be ways to try to measure them, but it's really, really difficult. And so, yeah, you're right in that, in that regard that we're, we're only measuring things that, that we can measure. And there's a lot more to the story than that. Uh, and we're also aggregating a lot of information, which means that you know, the the data that comes out isn't necessarily reflective of any one individual. It's just an average of, of many different people.
0: You had really emphasized that, yes, budget cuts may lead to some job losses, but that the economy, the Alaska economy at large, would be able to absorb some of those job losses. Does absorbed mean... Finding similar work or just simply finding
1: another job or what's meant by absorbed? Yeah, I really, I, I guess that might have been a, a poor choice of phrasing. But what I was really talking about was that when we have a bunch of people lose jobs in the oil and gas sector, for example, um, then they're not spending their income anymore. They might leave the state or they might stay here and, and, and be unemployed or whatever the case may be. But when you somebody loses their income, they also lose all of the money that they're spending. So the businesses that they were spending money on are no longer getting that, that revenue. What I was pointing out was that even if we do have a loss of people in the public sector, the private sector is growing. And so all of those multiplier effects, they're being offset by growth in other sectors. And so you have to take into account both the growth and the, uh, the reductions. You can't just hold everything constant and pretend like that's a prediction of the future. So that absorption, if you will, what i was saying is that even though people are losing income other people are gaining income and so you have to you have to weigh those things against each other
0: economists seem to be a little bit really love the the multiplier conversation some jobs are have a, a greater multiplier effect than other jobs i'm sure when you look at state work does that have a higher multiplier than some of our oil industry jobs is it the same or do we hold all the jobs kind of constant
1: yeah, it really just depends on on where the person that's getting the money where they're spending that income. And so if if, if you're counting income that somebody's getting on the North Slope, but then they go and spend all that money in Seattle, it's not gonna have any multiplier effect on the economy. Generally speaking, a public sector job is gonna be more local, so you're going to have some multiplier effect as they spend their wages here in the in the Alaska economy. The question then becomes, where did that money come from that we used to pay that person? And if we're, if we're taking money that would have went into the economy already, we're, we're taking it out of the economy and then injecting it in another form through a paycheck, you're not actually improving the economy at all. And that's one of the big mistakes that I see a lot of people make is that they pretend like that money just comes from thin air. And you always have to think, where did it come from? What's the unseen cost? What's the opportunity cost there? Um, and thats that, I hope that, you know, that's one of the things that I've really been trying to push for people to think a little bit more
0: about. That also plays with uh, the permanent fund dividend. I know that some people view that they'll say, okay, $2 billion injected into the Alaska economy. But I don't know what the numbers are at large. In my family, there's probably 60% of it that goes either out of state or into savings, of which I can't guarantee that eventually those savings dollars will come back in the form of income to the state. So if my children, for example, were to go out of state, then my permanent fund dividend probably was, you know, 60% of it was not going to the Alaska economy. Is that accurate? Is that a way to look at it or not really at all?
1: Yeah, it's one of the things that I, I did find as well was that the, the permanent fund dividend, um, it's it's an add-on to our existing income, and it's usually seen as you know, windfall wages. <clears throat> and so it seems like people are, are more likely to spend it to either pay down existing debts or to do something that they wouldn't normally do with their normal income, and that might be a vacation or that might be a large purchase. Um, and so a lot of that money does get, it seems to me at least, does tend to leave the state more than it does uh, circulate. So you'll see some impact. Small businesses are are relatively well uh they get a lot more of the benefit. But the general economy as a whole isn't completely dependent on that permanent fund dividend. But again, when you're when you're taking a thousand dollars away from everyone so that you can give a hundred thousand dollars a year to a few people, the economic impacts, but then there's those unseen impacts and there's those kind of fairness issues and things like that that need to be taken into consideration as well. So you have to ask yourself, you know, even though it's not having a huge impact on the economy is it the right thing to do is it is it the thing that is the best thing to do for our our people and
0: when you're talking taking a thousand dollars away from everybody to give a hundred thousand to a few people you're talking to to maintain uh some state state positions that type of thing
1: right right yeah so so it, it wouldn't make a lot of sense for example to take uh take $1 from everyone so that seven people can have a $100,000 a year job if their job was just to fill hole, to to dig holes and fill them up again. I mean, it wouldn't really make a lot of sense. A lot of people wouldn't probably not think too much about it cuz it's such a small amount of money, but multiply that by a thousand and all of a sudden you're starting to think about some really a big impact. So, if you're going to take money out of one person's pocket and put it into someone else's, you have to make sure that society as a whole is getting the benefit for that expenditure and and that's where the the economics from a macroeconomics perspective break down a little bit and you start getting into this this public policy perspective on what's the right thing to do is are we getting the right amount of value in exchange for what we would have had if we did something different
0: most of our state jobs uh, i've a lot of people will think that state jobs are not very highly paid some people will say that they are very highly paid in my estimation, most of our state jobs are are not going, a state worker is not going to be able to go over into the private sector and make as much money as our state generally pays, not across the board, but in a lot of situations. And so one lost state job might be more significant than other areas. Not sure what you think about that.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't, I, I mean, I think that ICER actually did a study on this and they kind of concluded that state workers aren't necessarily overpaid, but um, you, you think, you you know, they only work 37 and a half hours and they clock off at five o'clock and don't have to think about work until tomorrow. And they get, you know, a lot of paid leave and some pretty good benefits. So um, state workers, even though their kind of nameplate wages aren't absolutely outstanding compared to, you know, what somebody in a similar position would make in the private sector, uh, they're pretty well compensated. Um, it's just a different lifestyle. Um, and they are creating value, of course. Uh, and I do think a lot of them, a lot of the people that work in state government could go to the public, sec- the private sector, and, and make a good living. Um, so I wouldn't I wouldn't kind of make that blanket statement that 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 isn't true. Um, they are definitely worth the money that we're paying them. It's just a question of whether or not the the job that they're doing is you know something that that needs to be done, and and that's a question that the legislature has to deal with every year: whether or not those wages are are something that we can afford uh, relative to the value that's being created. That's a really
0: great point. And I know that people worry about outmigration essentially. So as, as we're adjusting to the new normal of revenue that we're we've seen outmigration for three or four years now, doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. And so there's a worry that more and more people are moving out of state and that's going to have a ripple effect. Where are we at on our outmigration?
1: So we've had out-migrate. Well, we always have out-migration every year. We have 40 or so thousand people that move away. Since 2012, that number has been a little bit higher, um, mostly just because the states that we compete with for talent are, are <laughs> they're, they're really attractive places. So Washington, Oregon, Texas, Oklahoma, North Dakota, there's a, and California, there's a lot of job opportunities down there that pay really well. Um, and so we're competing with those other states for that talent pool. And we've been losing that battle. Since our economy hasn't been doing as well as those others and uh, others other states have, um, we have been losing that migration battle. I don't think that that's a permanent state, um, and I do. I just did this analysis a week or two ago. Um, I was pointing out that a lot of what we're seeing is is people that uh, once their kids grow up and get off to college, they're more likely to leave, and so we are seeing some of the, a lot of that out migration is actually related to. Um, either retirees or people that are um, becoming empty nesters that have that freedom to move again. Um, as the population is aging, we're seeing more and more of that, that happening. Um, and so it's, it's going to be a, a tough, it's going to be tough for a long time as our demographics kind of work through the system. Um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be uh, too kind of doom and gloom about it. Um, if these people are are leaving, that's, that's not the end of the world. The economy can still function very well even if if less less people are here or less people are are part of the workforce as long as people are still spending the money well and i think some people would make the argument that
0: because we don't have a broad-based tax fewer people may actually be a, a benefit to the state i don't know if you think that that's true but certainly in theory it makes sense to me the state's not gaining anything from more people moving in and just having to provide more services so Perhaps the state becomes more efficient without a broad-based tax as people move out, or net out-migration is positive?
1: Yeah, so as people move away, if we're providing the same level of services to less people, then, yeah, you might see a reduction in costs. Also, the PFD gets bigger for the people that stay, right, as more people leave. So some people, yeah, I can see the argument on why that would be the case. Um, but there are efficiencies uh, there's economies of scale having a bigger population is usually a, a, a good thing a better thing than having a diminishing one um, but I, I mean I'm an Alaskan I, I, I don't really want to see Alaska turn into California you know I don't want, right. I don't want to see thousands millions of people moving up here I'm kind of happy with the, the type of economy we have now and so if it's a population induced, economic growth that's that's not necessarily a good thing and so having kind of stable population and stable job numbers just because they're not growing doesn't mean that's a bad thing as long as all of us that are living here have a high quality of life that's okay well and a lot of people want
0: to really really emphasize diversifying our economy and that's a great goal but I don't see where diversifying our economy is going to be that beneficial to it. I mean, we essentially are not going to be able to have a tech revolution up here or any of these other ideas that people espouse until we have cheaper access to to energy and if we're closer to markets. So right now, oil is going to be the primary driver, and I don't see massive diversification coming to Alaska anytime soon.
1: Yeah, and and our economy is actually more diversified than than people think that it is. Um, you know, we do get a lot of money from the military spending from the federal government. Um, there's the healthcare sector is really large, and there's a lot of other things that are going on in Alaska besides oil and gas. So it, it is relatively diversified. The fact that our revenue stream in state government is so dependent on one commodity, and that commodity is a very volatile price structure, that's rough. Uh, but we can deal with that. And and I don't, I, I don't think that even as oil declines, I don't think it's the end of the world. We're not going to become a ghost town or anything like that. Um, our economy is is really, relatively well-situated, and it's, we've proven over the last three or four years through this recession, the oil and gas sector was the only one that was really negatively affected. The rest of the economy survived quite well. Um, and so I think our economy is actually a lot more durable than people think as well.
0: Well, I think we've we've had a chance to really showcase that areas of the state through this downturn in, in commodity prices have not seen the level of recession that maybe would have been anticipated or that we would have seen 20 or 30 years ago because of the economy. The baseline of the economy is stronger and more stable than what it used to be. And that certainly helped us.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's absolutely the case. and And I wouldn't look past the fact that you know, 40 years ago, 30 40 years ago, when people were just moving up to Alaska, they were in their 20s. They were looking for their first job on the slope to put money in the bank and and kind of get their lives started. Those people were have been working for the last 30 or 40 years now, and and a lot of the people that live in the state are not just young kids without any savings. A lot of people have, uh, you know, retirement savings or pension plans. They have money in the bank. They have equity in their homes. And so what we saw during this last recession was that a lot of people were able to. Uh, can maintain their their standard of living without having the same level of wages and that really helped us We didn't see a huge drop in our housing market we didn't see a huge upset in our labor market other than in the oil and gas support sector um, and and our economy actually did really really well
0: you recently made some <laughs> some predictions and I don't know if you want to direct people to where they can find these predictions, but they're they're absolutely incredible to think about they're fun to think about more than that uh, from a thought experiment you made a projection that oil production was going to go up over the next 10 years i don't see that happening but what did you think about or what played into oil production increasing over the next 10 years
1: uh yeah so my website kingeconomicsgroup.com you can go on there if you want and and find some articles uh, that i've written over the, the last several months um, but at the beginning of the year, I thought it would be fun to just kind of explore what the next decade might look like. It's not an economic analysis; it's just me kind of, uh, you know, barstool talking, um, if you will, about what I kind of how the dominoes might fall. Uh, and and one of the things that that I pointed out or thought through was what happens on the North Slope over the next decade. Um, and I start to think about Hellcorp taking over Prudhoe Bay, and I start to think about ConocoPhillips and the Willow project, and the, uh, oil search with the PICA Project, and is uh, a lot of the exploration and development activity that's happening throughout the uh, NPRA and and down south through the rest of that like horseshoe trend and up the Narwhal, and and I just see so many uh, opportunities for development. When I plug that all of that idea of future opportunities into a model. I come up with a number that's bigger than it is today. And so it's actually quite a bit bigger. It's probably 20 or 30% bigger um, than we're at today. So I, I kind of made a, a hedge on the prediction. I said production in 2030 will be higher than it was in 2020. Um, so it's a pretty low bar. It's only got to be 500,000 barrels per day to, to be accurate. I actually think it'll even be more than that. And if you just look at the trend, you know, the, the trend is that we'll probably be in the 350 to 400 barrel per day range in 10 years, if the current trend just kind of continues. So I'm only talking about another hundred thousand barrels and that, you know, one of those projects is going to get you there, either a PICA or a Willow or some combination of other things. So I don't actually think it's very aggressive of a, of a prediction and I'm hopeful that we actually beat it by quite a bit. And it's possible that we'll be up in the, you know, 650, 700,000 barrels per day range by the time that we get there. And if we have the production
0: going up, the prices have seemed to yeah. stabilize just a little bit in this 55 to $65 range. It, it doesn't appear that we're going to be venturing anytime in the near future back into the $26 range for WTI, which was probably $31, $32 for Alaska crude. Doesn't seem to be the case. So we've got a little bit of a floor on prices perhaps a little bit of floor on production. And so, you know, look at that over the long term and you look and you say, okay, maybe two or three more years from now, we could be back into a revenue surplus type of situation.
1: Yeah. So if you just look at oil prices and, and just trend it for, so the $60, $65 per barrel kind of price range that we're locked into in the in the near term, <clears throat> that, that's really kind of the sweet spot of where oil is. Is trading it's, it's effectively what it costs uh, to find and produce another barrel of oil. So we're kind of in that marginal cost range, and so we've had so much global oil coming on, global supply coming on the market that it's been really hard to break to the to the upside. And a lot of that has to do with spending that happened five or ten years ago um, that's now just turning into production. But one of the things that I said was that don't don't mistake. Right. What you see today with what things will look like in the future. Uh, because investment has slowed down a lot over the last few years. Um, and there are opportunities for supply disruptions to happen, especially if it has to do with uh, like federal policy. Uh, and so it's possible that we can see a lot of supply come offline and not keep up with the amount of demand that is a lot harder to get rid of. So there seems to me like there's going to be a window where prices might actually rise. Now, remember, $60, $60, $65 today, 10 years from now, just inflation is going to push that up to like $80. So uh, that's not a huge number. But I'm thinking it might actually go even higher than that. Um, And I I kind of suggested that if the federal government does do something fairly dramatic, uh, we could be looking at a short-term window of prices above $100 barrel.
0: We are in a window... It appears that there's an appetite for doing more to curb our emissions, to curb development. Uh, fracking is a very easy target because fracking impacts so many or so few states, and I think that's I think fracking is a very easy target for federal policy to say, look, we're going to we're really going to slow this down, especially on federal lands. But perhaps even looking at that in other areas and saying, look, this the risk is too high to water tables and the emissions, which if we removed
1: some of the fracking,
0: that is probably a huge benefit to oil prices.
1: Yeah. So you would immediately see a reduction in production levels because every well that's produced these days is fracked. Um, it's just the normal technology that we use now. Uh, and so if there were to be a ban on fracking, you would expect that the United States production would drop very, very quickly, a lot more quickly than uh, a change in consumption can keep up with. And so that would imply that prices would rise. Um, Now, if you keep prices high enough, long enough, then people are going to start switching fuels and the price will come back down again. So there's just that window. And I kind of see that window opening, you know, six or 10 years from now, and the prices just have an opportunity to go up relatively high. And so
0: perhaps it's this... One last chance for Alaska to take advantage of its oil production and prepare itself for what would be a post-oil Alaska. It's not like we're going to go to zero production, but maybe where we're not going to get bailed out again. Because you also predict that there probably will not be a state sales tax or income tax passed anytime soon because of the because of the chance for increased revenue.
1: Yeah, that that combination of uh, potential revenue increases helping kind of solve the the short-term budget issues. Um, But also the fact that we have investment revenues and adequate savings, um, even though they're in the earnings reserve, they're still accessible. We have adequate savings to kind of get through the next several years um, without a tax. And and I, I kind of just thinking through the, the logic, I see an argument for not passing a tax in the near term. And then over the next couple of years, the conversation will probably turn as revenue projections increase to whether or not we actually even need a tax. now. Once, you, like what you were saying, um, once we get through this next kind of oil boom, if, if it actually comes, and hopefully it does, um, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to get another one after that. Uh, and so transitioning to a world post crude is something that we should start to think about now, because if we don't start thinking about it until it's upon us, we won't have time to react.
0: <laughs> it's. Uh, I wonder how many different people... Uh, in this state have sat down and had this conversation since 1968, the conversation of what are we going to do after Prudhoe? You know, it's just, it's a funny, it's a, a funny topic that we have continuously talk about it. I don't think that we've really done it, but uh, I'm guessing that we're not the first ones to talk about it.
1: Yeah. I, I think, you know, even I, I've kind of read through some of the historic uh, documents and revenue projections and things like that, and you can start to see it in the early, in the mid 80s or so when the oil prices crashed. Um, there were some warning flags like, hey, our revenue is not that stable, and oh, by the way, uh, oil tends to decline some at some point. Um, and then early in the late 80s, early 90s, you actually started to see oil decline, and people were raising flags again: hey, oil's declining. We need to start preparing for the fact that it's not going to be around forever. You know, the, in the 80s, that actually led to the permanent fund dividend. I mean, the permanent fund, not the dividend. Um, But and then in the 90s, that conversation was had. And then in the 2000s, we saw a dip in oil price along with continued decline. But we were still about a million barrels a day. So, you know, 20 years ago now, um, this was a really serious topic that people were talking about. Uh, But fortunately for us, I suppose, oil prices ramped up really quickly and kind of masked that problem of decline. And now here we are again talking about the same problem that, you know, we probably should have solved a generation ago. Uh,
0: you've got one other prediction, and that was that the permanent fund itself hits $100 billion, which let's just take that at face value. It hits $100 billion. At $100 billion, are we
1: talking about no need for oil revenue anymore? Uh, not quite. 100000000000 billion won't get you there without any other revenue. You still need something. Even, you know, at, at $100 billion, unless you got rid of the dividend, maybe it might, it might get you there. But as long as you're paying a dividend, you're going to need more money than that. $100 billion is a big number, kind of why I stuck it in there. It's actually a little bit aggressive of a prediction, but um, I wanted the shock value in the round number, so I put it in there. I think we'll probably end up in the 90s, but it'll be close. But yeah, just pointing out the fact that as long as we don't spend all of the earnings and we continue to reinvest some of that money, um, when we come out of this next, recessionary period, there should be opportunities through productivity growth to for company values to just increase substantially. And and so I think that we'll see this period of time where the economy, the US economy is growing um, pretty aggressively. And and I, I if you look at our history as a permanent fund performance, you know, nine point three or so percent per year is just the average return. Right now they're only projecting seven. And so I was trying to highlight the fact that those projections, although they are they're good in what they do, they're not necessarily uh, capturing the opportunity that it does exist it, it it's possible it's very possible that our fund performance outperforms those expectations.
0: What does a permanent fund dividend look like at a hundred billion dollar
1: corpus uh, so the permanent fund dividend is calculated based on returns so i guess it depends on how quickly you get to that 100 billion the scenario that i kind of ran was that we have this recession and then followed by this really aggressive ramp up and in that scenario where you have several years in a row of double digit growth if that were to be the case you'd be talking about six or seven thousand dollars per person
0: you can't possibly allow six or seven thousand dollars per person i'm just saying that from uh from a perspective, if you're in, in Juneau, I don't see anybody having an appetite for allowing six or seven thousand dollars a person. I mean those would be some pretty massive Yeah, markets.
1: I think I, I definitely think there's a point where people start to think about the you know, whether that makes sense or not. And I think we're kind of there at the three thousand dollar dividends that are being calculated now. You know, people are like, Yeah, that seems like a lot more money than we should really be distributing. So yeah, I, I agree Five, six, seven thousand dollars dividend is probably not going to happen. But I think that also signals that if that's true, and it seems to be true, then it kind of signals to the fact that the current dividend calculation isn't really going to be followed in the future, and it raises the question of whether we should make an adjustment to that calculation.
0: Do you think we're going to get to a solution on the dividend in this legislative session, or do you think it's too uh,
1: too controversial? Or no opinion? Yeah, it's, it's a big topic to tackle. And I know there's a lot of people that have different ideas, lots of different ideas. Uh, but at the end of the day, both bodies have to pass something and the governor needs to sign it for it to become law unless they have the, the two-thirds vote to override on that particular issue. So I would say that they're probably getting, uh, Mike, if I was you know just imagining how this session plays out, uh, I definitely think a bill will be debated. The bill might even be passed. I have a hard time believing the governor will sign anything that's anything more than you know, maybe a POMV fifty-fifty kind of deal. Maybe he might sign that, but anything that's more aggressive than that, I just, I, knowing his positions, I have a hard time believing that he would sign it. So I think that it'll definitely be debated, and uh, I would imagine that we end up with just an ad hoc dividend again this year, and I would imagine it's somewhere in the twelve to sixteen hundred dollar range.
0: I want to throw just a complete curveball out at you that you haven't even had a chance to think about, but I just want to throw this out. For the Alaska economy, uh, we've been emphasizing Alaska grown, buy local, etc. Do you have a view of how Alaska grown buying local plays out in the Alaska economy?
1: If you had the opportunity or the option of Buying something that was produced locally or something that was produced out of state, and they're the same price, I would suggest that you go ahead and buy the local product because then you're supporting Alaskan. Um, If those prices are different, then you have to kind of do that mental math on on how much you're willing to pay in order to support Alaskan jobs. Um, And that's yeah, that's that's a question that's different for every individual, whether you go to the store that's owned by a local business and manufactured here in town, or whether you buy something on Amazon you have to do that math yourself.
0: What are some opportunities in the Alaska economy that you see going over the next 10 years? Obviously we have oil, we have federal spending, we have healthcare spending. Are there any other interesting opportunities that we might have?
1: Yeah, there's definitely some mining opportunities, uh, which are exciting and, and would definitely, you know, change the shape of a few economic systems, regional systems here, whether or not you like mining is, uh, I guess a personal preference, but there are definitely um, value creation and job creation that happens when you develop a resource. Um, oil, of course, is still really um, a big part of what the future looks like. Uh, and then I guess it would just become a question of whether or not we can become a place where people want to live and produce things that are you know, not necessarily tangible pro- products. So, like, if, if Alaska can become a Silicon Valley type of an economic system, I don't really know if we can get there or not. But that's the direction that other economies are moving in, where people are working remotely and creating things that are you know, software-based. You can do that in Alaska as well as you can do it in California. So that's an opportunity. I don't know that that's necessarily what's going to happen or not. And then the other thing is just retirement income. We need to we need to encourage people to have money to live here and spend it locally, um, and and that doesn't necessarily mean that you bring uh, you know a car manufacturing plant up to Alaska. It might just mean bringing people's pensions up, and that would support the economy as well.
0: Yeah, there is a significant number of people who move away with with large resources in retirement. They move away from the state, and a lot of times they've. They've built up those retirements through years of receiving services from the state. We've also got to look at ways to tie rural Alaska to the urban core. I don't know. I haven't lived in southeast. I don't know what it looks like in southeast. Here in southwest, one of the things that I I notice more than anything is that when the state spending money, even if you're building a new school or when you're talking about mining, any of these other activities, they're almost always going to be supported from Anchorage. So that money flows from oil revenue to the state or whatever form that the money takes. And then it's usually a Anchorage construction company that's doing the building on the schools and then leaving. Or it's Anchorage workers or Seattle workers, or Calgary workers that are working in the mines, etc. And we haven't found a way to develop the rural economy. Does Southeast deal with any of that or is Southeast separate?
1: Yeah, uh, so southeast is mostly, uh, um, you know, state government funded or federal government funded. Most of our economy jobs here, supported by the public sector. But then we do have, you know, mining and fishing, and a uh, little tiny bit of timber, and um, and then tourism is increasingly becoming an important sector here in, in the southeast. Um, but we're more, you know, at least is more of an urban center than some of the other small communities that, that you're talking about. And I, I think, yeah, it's definitely the case that, you know, if you bring something in that stimulates the economy, like if you were to bring in a car manufacturer into Bethel, it would create a lot of jobs, sure. But a lot of those jobs would mean that a lot of more people from the lower 48 moved up to take them. Um, and it might not actually do a whole lot for the people that live there today. It might actually be really disruptive to their way that they would like their lives to be. So yeah, there's really this this tension between – what does economic growth look like and what does desirable economic growth look like? And it's bigger, is not necessarily better. And I think that that is something that we need to pay a little bit more attention to.
0: Well, let me put you on the spot with one other question. You are in Southeast. How are the economics of the ferry working out right now? So does there need to be a change, or would losing some of the ferry service as it is today be more harmful to the economy than good in savings?
1: It's a really tough question, to be honest. I mean, there's you can step back as somebody that doesn't live in the southeast, and you can ask about the question. You can ask the question about subsidizing transportation costs, um, and and it's it's a valid concern question, and and it's it's, it's a legitimate point. Um, you know that. The marine highway system allows us to have a, a lower transportation cost, um, but we would point to the rest of the communities that are on on the road system and say that those road systems subsidize transportation costs for all of the goods that you buy, whether you live in Matts, or Fairbanks or wherever you live on the road system. Now, you know, in Bethel, of course, you guys are you're probably more um, like like we are here in Southeast, but. We consider that marine highway system to be the same as a, a road highway system. It's 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 an integral part of the way that we get around and, and we move things from place to place. So whether that should we should have to pay for it all of ourselves or whether some public funds should be dedicated towards it, it's a good debate to have. But you know, just the argument that you can just get rid of the ferry system, I think, is something that would be met with a lot of resistance.
0: Well, yeah. I mean- um, the economy has been designed, some of the economy has been designed around the existence of the ferry system. So removing it, when you look at the dollars that are removed from the ferry system, then you have to compare it to the number of dollars that are pulled out of the other economies, etc. It becomes a lot more confusing than people give it credit for. And out here, yeah, yeah. Southwest, we, I mean, we also federally, we have a central air service that subsidizes some of our mail delivery, subsidizes some of our groceries that go through bypass mail is a huge one. So there's a lot of uh, subsidizing to how the economy works in every single place.
1: Yeah, and, and re- in reality, that's one of the primary functions of the government is to provide the infrastructure that allows an economy to function. Um, and you know, here we don't have that luxury of building roads that connect connect communities. And so, whether or not that means we need to have a ferry system to do that, or whether you need to subsidize their system to the rest of the rural communities, you know, that's a really good debate to have about public spending and, and public good. Um, but the argument that we can just get rid of it because it's it's a waste or that it's unnecessary, I, think, I don't think that that's accurate. Um, yeah, and you also have to think about what the next best alternative is. So if we didn't have the ferry system, what would we be doing? It wouldn't mean that people are just Um, Stranded and can't get any goods or or any goods or any transportation. It just means they have to do it another way. Whether that's a more expensive private company or whether that's air travel or what that looks like, it's a higher cost. And and that's where you really the math really gets tricky. Is it's not all or nothing. It's all or next best option. And that's it's something that I think even the the current report that just came out by Northern Economics didn't really do a great job of of identifying. They did a good job, but not a great job.
0: Well, Ed, I appreciate that you gave at least an hour to Alaska Conversations. I love to talk about economics. I love to talk about Alaska's economy in general. I think that we have a more unique economy than some of the other states, especially because of our lack of infrastructure. Are there any other final thoughts on on the state economy or something that you find in your research over the last couple of years that you find extremely interesting, that perhaps somebody else isn't thinking about, or maybe you have to think of, think about that for a while. Maybe the next time that you that you join
1: me, see, so I'm already cornering you into it. Yeah, I, I think we we covered a lot of topics, but yeah, the one thing that I I think that is interesting and that people really need to appreciate is is how not just our economy, but how our entire population base is changing, and really consider whether or not a growing population and a growing jobs number is the best indicator of a strong economy and whether or not, you know, growing wages and better standard of life and quality of life, whether those are better measures of, of, of success. So I, I would just, I would caution people, I guess, um, against using standard macroeconomic indicators as a way to gauge whether Alaska is doing well or not it's more complicated than that.
0: Uh, and, and you're not going to be able, as you mentioned earlier, to measure your standard of life, quality of life. And with the, pro- with the population base changing, you're meaning composition of ages or just interests of the, of the people, sectors of work, et cetera?
1: Yeah, definitely um, the aging population as those baby boomers continue to enter retirement age and it's shifting the entire dynamics of the way the economy functions. Really, uh, we're, we are a microcosm of what's happening. I don't know at a, low, uh, at a um, national level, but ours is actually exaggerated because we attracted so many people in the 1980s that were of that younger age that are now living here. Our concentration of baby boomers and how it's affecting our population is exaggerated compared to other places. And if you don't take that into consideration when you look at how the population is changing, how the labor force is changing, how our economy is changing, you're not getting a very accurate picture of what's going on.
0: That's an interesting, really interesting point. What you're seeing is more and more people staying in the state, which that has the potential to drive serious costs higher in in healthcare spending.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, there are plenty of problems for us to face. Economics is a wonderful thing. You can look at Ed King at it's uh, kingeconomicsgroup.com or what's the what's your website? Yeah, that's that's right. Okay, King Economics Group, and he puts out tons of articles, really worth the read. It's a way to think about things a lot differently. And Ed, I really appreciate your time. Enjoy Juno.
1: Enjoy the session, and uh, have a good day. All right. Thanks, Casey. Yep.